It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes and we have a blog, which someday will be updated at filmsociology.tumblr.com. First off, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you to everyone who supported WFYI during our fall membership drive, everybody who called in, everybody who went online, everybody who became new members, sustaining members, or renewing your memberships. Thank you so much. And it's it's folks like you that keep this ridiculous show on the air. And on behalf of the Film Sociology crew, I thank you. So, And uh, also, part of the reason why uh, we have uh, a show like Film Sociology, we talk about local films, we talk about national films, and we talk about local film festivals, which is uh, it's local and global at the same time. Heartland Film Festival is happening now, and we have some filmmakers in studio who are uh, here to talk about Heartland and just hang out with me as long as they can before they go to their next thing. So um, if we can actually everybody verbally sign in, please, in your affiliation with your film, and then we'll get the, we'll get to Gab. Uh, Laura Goodnow, I'm the producer of Year by the Sea, one of the films at the Heartland Film Festival this year. Alexander Janko, writer, director, composer of Year by the Sea. I'm Ted Green, uh, the producer, writer, uh, director of Addicts, the, the, I forgot my title there for a second, Addicts, the school that opened a city. And so, so everybody, remember those voices. That way, we can clarify. Okay, so I guess we'll start with uh, was year by the sea. I guess when when is it airing? When is the screenings here in Indy? Uh, we screen four times this evening: uh, Friday, October twenty first at eight fifteen; Saturday, October twenty second at six p.m. Uh, those are both at Castleton Square fourteen. Uh, Tuesday at three thirty at Showplace Traders Point, and then again Saturday, October 29th, at 12.15 at AMC, Castleton Square 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, Attics Films, uh, next Thursday, October 27th at 3 p.m. Uh, at Castleton. Okay, so there you go. And full disclosure, Attics, WFYI, in tight. <laughs> yes, it was a co-production of Ted Green Films uh, and WFYI, and uh, we were very excited about it. It actually premiered a couple of months ago, and Heartland put it on at the Madam Walker Theater here in town, and uh, we're very humbled uh, by the response that it got. 
Absolutely. So, uh, Alexander, tell us about, uh, tell for those who don't know, about Year by the Sea. Uh, it's a baby boomer coming-of-age story based on a New York Times bestselling memoir by Joan Anderson. And it uh, stars Karen Allen, Yannick Bassan, Esapetha Murkison, Michael Christopher, and Celia Emery. And how did you how did you discover the article? Uh, it actually discovered me. <laughs> oh, do tell. <laughs> uh, I came home one day uh, from swimming at the YMCA, and there was this dirty, dusty, mildewy, jacketless book on the kitchen counter. Uh, this was back in 2008, uh, 2008, 2009. And I picked it up because I was boiling water for tea, and I just cracked open this book and the opening sentence was the decision to separate seemed to happen overnight and I was kind of hooked because I'm a sucker for opening lines and I just kept reading and as as three hours went by I was like wow you know this this is sort of a very universal story it reminded me of my mother and I, I, I hearkened back to when I was in fifth grade and there was a classmate of mine whose mom disappeared for a year and nobody talked about why or what was going on and then mysteriously a year later she reappeared and everything was fine and everybody moved on so I just thought to myself hmm I wonder if there's a kernel of, of truth to this universally and dove in and so you adapted it from this piece I did indeed it started out uh, as Joan Joan's first book was a year by the sea and that's what the first iteration of the script was but as we got involved uh, in the development process, um, it was actually her recommendation that we look at her second book, which was An Unfinished Marriage, and her third book, A Walk on the Beach. It, it's really a trilogy because mm -hmm. the, the first one was about the year by the sea. The second was about her relationship with her husband. And the third was about her relationship with Joan Erickson, who ultimately was her mentor, uh, the wife, late wife of... Um, of Eric Erickson, Mr. Identity Crisis. Okay. Um, so it's just, it, it's a very interesting, um, I say coming of age story, you know, but for a baby boomer, it's sort of that empty nest syndrome that happens uh, to so many women, you know, when the, after 30 years of, of marriage and, and motherhood, they wake up and they go, oh my gosh, where am I and what am I doing and where am I going? So I want, I want to clarify, ladies and gentlemen, this is taking three different stories and making them into one as opposed to making two films out of one book, Warner Brothers, <laughs> Hunger Games. Yeah, I'm looking at you. Thanks a lot. I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? Okay, good. Uh, but no, I like the fact that also that the, the, the coming-of-age story and self-discovery story, it's, it's an ageless phenomenon, mm -hmm. even, even if uh, films are geared toward younger people, get off my lawn. But no, but if the fact that you have a self-discovery story about a mature person this time around. It is, and it, it's kind of fun because I think we're all sort of aware of you know that dirty, dirty word, ageism. Um, oh, that one. Yes, thank you. <laughs> It, uh, it it it's it's prevalent uh, in Hollywood and the movies, and I'm proud to say that our film uh, features three beautiful, uh, radiant actresses inside and outside that are all over the age of 60, and it's really resonating with audiences because nearly, or I think over 100 million Americans uh, are now 55 plus, and there's a very robust a number of them. 59 million went to the movies last year, and Hollywood doesn't make films for them. And HR is always run by somebody in their 20s, so yeah, <laughs> thanks. I guess, uh, speaking of the ladies, how, how were you able to, to get your cast? We were very fortunate in getting the script to Pat McCorkle. Uh, she's a very, um, uh, just a highly respected, uh, highly regarded casting director in New York. She does a lot of live theater as well as feature films, and she loved the script. And uh, she said, I want to do this. 
um, which was a huge cue for us because, uh, of course, independent, independent film means you know no money, and there's always that catch-22 of, of course. how do you get your cast when you don't have your financing, and how do you get your financing when you don't have your cast? And Pat basically went out and just opened a lot of doors and got the scripts uh, and got, you know, put the script in the hand of, of a lot of different uh, very talented actors. And ironically, it was it was a man, Michael Christopher, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, director in his own right, mm-hmm. um, an actor who decided to come on board, uh, as he likes to say, to make sure that uh, somebody was defending Robin, you know, br- <laughs> bringing husband, equal yeah. opportunity to the husband. In sure. The case. <laughs> It's tough being sitcom husband. I know. It's amazing, <laughs> it's amazing, so. And uh, as, how long uh, you shot on Cape Cod? We did. Uh, we shot exclusively on Cape Cod. Uh, we sort of chose Wellfleet as our town center and and then combined a bunch of Harwich, New Orleans, uh, Chatham locations. Because, you, you know, you help, their, they help the local community. Their finances are in. No, I'm kidding. They're doing, <laughs> no, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm from a filmmaking standpoint, what are what were the uh, what were the advantages and what were mm. the challenges for for exclusive shooting? I, I think without a question, um, the the advantage was the fact that the cape is a character in the film, and you really cannot replicate that. Um, and it's and it's beautiful. We we made a, a real effort to incorporate you know the nature and the townsfolk and all of the businesses. We didn't change any signage or anything. This mm-hmm. this is anybody who goes to see the film that knows the cape will recognize. You know all these people and all these places. Um, the challenge, of course, being it was expensive. Um, it's it's not uh, inexpensive to shoot in the United States anymore, unfortunately. Um, and we w- we did have the benefit of uh, the Massachusetts tax credits, and we did schedule the film off season. So I was that, about to say that because I know there's there's Ma Nature. Yes. Yeah. Her her uh, her phone is always not always the easiest. Yeah. It it, it really helped that we did it. Uh, we had 22 days, and we shot in uh, April to May, and so the, the the rule was you know no once Memorial Day um, came along, uh, we had to get out of town. So that that was tricky. You know, I also did I sort of violated all the first time. Uh, filmmaker rules. Oh, do tell. <laughs> we, like we, what? We shot on water. Um, we shot seasons. Uh, so, I mean, a story that had you know, right. three seasons. Um, we shot with animals. We shot with children. Um, it just, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And uh, At least I, you didn't have a shark that was not working. But there's... It, uh, this is true. Al- al- although <laughs> we, There were shark-infested waters. <laughs> there were shark we're working, right. <laughs> seals are in the Now, in now the were film, you putting so. shaving cream on the sand, depending on what season it was? <laughs> it was cold. I mean, the, we, we had to do an establishing shot with Karen, um, and, and much to my chagrin, it, it wound up not being in the movie because she was so upset about having to do it. Um, but it was 40 degrees. The water was 40 degrees. And, oh you know, we actually had her get in the water, not fully submerged swimming because we couldn't certainly do that. With. Don't worry. There's some scenes from The Wanderers. It's not as I'm sure <laughs> that was a little more embarrassing than the water story. But anyway, <laughs> hi, Karen. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, it's funny. You remind, I remind, it remind me of doing spring break in New Jersey on mm. the beach in March. Not mm. the best idea. Cheap, but not the, <laughs> not the most practical idea. Yeah. So, yeah. No. But you got through it. We did. We did. It was it was actually. It was a very serendipitous uh, shoot. For example, um, the one day out of 22 days that we needed fog uh, to sh- literally it was it was it was the day that there was ground fog, and we saw it in the forecast. We actually didn't have to change the schedule. We'd sort of scheduled to shoot 
um, the rowing scene that day. And I was just like, wow, okay, this is so, sort of lucky. Because I wonder if, yeah, I wondered if looking at the almanac or checking out the weather forecast of, you know, what, did weather alter some shooting days? It did, uh, but I think what we were more, I mean, I sort of went into it saying, you know, Orson Welles has a famous quote, which is, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. So, uh, you know, my background as a, as a musician, classically trained, but then ultimately in jazz, you know, I'm comfortable with improvisation. So we went into it saying, we're just going to have to accept what Mother Nature delivers. And if it's not a sunny day, it's not going to be you know, a sunny shot. Well, at least it's not, or, or the 50s day for night shots. Yes. <laughs> oh, my no. God. Although, although we, <laughs> we did have some of those. You know, it, it, I think the, the most challenging aspect, to be perfectly honest, was the, the tides. And, and it was because sometimes we had to get to certain locations. Sure. And that could be an inhibitor. Um, and other times, um, you know, we just you got boats i mean we, we we had this marine crew and they would like literally be telling us you know you got about like a half an hour left maybe an hour and then we're stuck out here <laughs> we're not getting back to base camp and no cg tides no there was no there was i i don't think we didn't oh we had we have one we had one sort of effect shot in the film can which you is, tell us what it is it's basically uh, uh it was really more of an overlay than anything yeah. else it was yeah. um it, I, I did it myself, actually, didn't I, in in, uh, in Abbott? I wanted to make sure the cape was a character, right? right? So I wanted all these animals and seagulls and seals and everything. And there was this one establishing shot where uh, Karen's character, Joan, is rowing up to the, to the beach. And we saw in the editing room that there was this gorgeous rock in the foreground and a seagull on it. And it took off like flight just before she came into frame. And so I, you know, the, it's the world of digital magic, right? So I literally took that segment and I took, so basically the upper sort of third of the, of the uh, screen is that shot. And the lower two thirds is her rowing. And, and it, it, it just because of the water line and the shade and stuff, mm -hmm. I, we really didn't have to paint anything out. It was like literally just sandwiching the two shots. See, see I like those. So yeah, that's fine. I, my other favorite CG is, is Ang Lee adding clouds in Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. I'll take that over a giant monster or, you know, thousands <laughs> of extras not fighting in Troy or all that yes. stuff. So, yes. no, that's, 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 see, it's used for good, not for ridiculous. Yeah, so. I think that's really more of a composite than it is like an effect it shot. It is. We, ha we, we tried to do one effect shot, but it was just cost prohibitive. There was no possible Oh, that's right. <laughs> you could have the shot or you could eat. You know. it, it was crazy. <laughs> we, we, we got a bid for, for doing a, a rudder scan of adding clams to the basket, you know, because they, they were supposed to be out like all day clamming. And we had one of the, we had one of the funniest uh, situations where we, we literally, we were on Cape Cod and we bought out all the clams. And there were, no, but I couldn't fill the baskets, right? Like it was off season, and we just we got every clam that was in every. I and a garden is ticked off. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> was, Different area. Yeah, I want to. I want to jump in here. You yeah. bought out all the clams in Cape Cod. Well, it, it was, that might have been a slight exaggeration. Some do, <laughs> but we certainly bought a lot of clams. We did, and, and the baskets weren't full. And I was like, this does not look like they've been clamming for you know days on end. Can you eat clams now? Oh God, yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh, I, thank you. you I, you know, high school production of of uh, Carousel has one of the most ridiculous songs in musical theater. And I remember we went to Howard Johnson's. I'm dating myself, and and having fried clams in the cast looking at me. I'm like, what? You didn't dig it. You just sang it. 
Yeah. So there. Oh, well, yeah. I'm glad to see seafood is still. Oh, sir, uh, just a plug. I mean, they weren't even in the movie, but Sir Crickets, you know, in New Orleans. I mean, uh, it's yeah. the most amazing seafood you can get. It's incredible. So you said you also did the score. I did. That's actually my background. The, okay. The first 10 years uh, of my career, I worked on 65 major motion picture soundtracks. and um, Such as plug, plug, go for it. Uh, well, I guess the ones that I'm proudest of, um, I did 35 films with, with Dave Newman, and one of them was Anastasia that was nominated for an uh, mm-hmm. Oscar. And then I worked with R.E.M., and uh, Man on the Moon was nominated for a Grammy. But then I had sort of the overnight... Uh, break. He's using finger quotes, <laughs> folks. If you couldn't tell from the tone, but and yes. I did the um, I did the score for the first of my Big Fat Greek Wedding, mm-hmm. and that kind of changed my world in a lot of ways because it it opened my eyes to independent filmmaking, which is a completely different beast than studio filmmaking. And I thought, wow, this is this is really kind of cool. This is really fun, and there was a lot more creative freedom. Um, it was artistically a lot more fulfilling, and obviously the back end was pretty good too. And so I said, hmm. I want to explore this a little bit more. Uh, little did I know it would take as long as it did to set up my own project. But I actually pursued Year by the Sea and a bunch of other films that are uh, in development now because I was looking for something to actually score. I, I actually never set out to direct the film. Uh, I, I figured, you know, I probably should find a, a female director. It's a, it's a woman's story. But I knew I wanted to score it. And the only way I could do that was to obtain the rights and then write the script and as things just you know as things sort of evolved um we, we we sent it out to a couple of female directors and you know everybody loved the script but nobody was available or they'd already done something and you know how sure. it, just, it plays out and it was ultimately the uh the investors who came in who said uh this is kind of crazy you know everything's on the page your visions it's clearly you you know what this film is you're the one who's been been doing it so you should direct it now then i was i was sort of like Oh, okay. And then it was kind of this, um, I guess I better start reading some books on directing and <laughs> do a quick study or education. But for me, it was the, the, the transition was seamless because I recorded with so many musicians and with so many orchestras around the world that I felt artist to artist, it was, it was very similar. The, working with the actors, there was, there was no difference really at all. I think even... Um, Probably, you know, organizing the crew and stuff was very similar to organizing scoring sessions. The, the, I think the big learning curve for me was I'd had such an uh, established uh, time um, on the music side of things. I kind of assumed going on set that everybody, I'd be in sync with everybody or everybody would be in sync with me because that's sort of how it was in my other life. And that was the rude awakening. It was like, oh, yeah, it took me 10 years to kind of, you know, f- for all those other teams to finish their sentences. Um, and here we were with a whole new language and a whole new group of people. So I would say, so the, in, in this case, did the, the score come last? Yes and no. It, I had start, when I started, when I first read the book, um, I could hear it. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that was going to be the follow-up there. Yeah, and, and so that sort of just went off into, that kind of filed away. Um, and then as I was writing it, I was listening a lot to the Weepies, uh, which is a, a wonderful um, duo, husband and wife, a band. And I realized as I was writing the script that a lot of their songs, and I ultimately used six of them uh, in the film, they really help continue to tell the story lyrically. 
So all the montage sequences, I think what a lot of people respond to, ironically, <laughs> or maybe not so ironically, after the film, everybody's like, wow, I really love the you know, music, really love the score. And I, I kind of just smile because that's my strength, right? So I didn't have to really even think about it. Um, and so that was, but, but what, what was wild about the experience of scoring it myself is that that's, of course, the underscore is post-production, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd finished writing it, which you make sort of one film as you write it. Then we went and shot it. That was the second iteration. And then your third iteration is in the edit room when, we, when you're putting it all together. And I had a rude awakening when I went to go score the movie because I knew it so well. I realized after the first sort of preview test screening, and we, we shared it with a couple of people, I'm watching it, and then you know we're having a conversation afterwards, and I was like, I'm going to have to throw out half my score because I was totally leading the witness. Right. Like I, there were no surprises anymore. Um, and that, that was sort of the biggest challenge for me as the composer on the film was mm -hmm. to literally my the director me right. had to tell the composer me, you know, eh. See, and then this doesn't happen often. I, I, you know, I wondered if Clint has the same things when he's not working with Lenny Niehaus. So, he, yeah, because he, he, he's, he's been known to do both on occasion. He is. He's, he's, in fact, I mean, he, he's a fascinating, fascinating filmmaker. My, my engineer, Bobby Fernandez, um, actually got his start with Clint and he's done all of his films with Clint. And the the thing about Clint is he's he's so he he's a a beautiful pianist jazz pianist, mm -hmm. and um, and that really is one of his first loves. That, that was that was that goes way back oh, to yeah. you know Bird and the, even before Bird, uh, I think it was Play Misty for me. Yeah, um, the, the, that's always been his thing, and uh, yeah, he would go down to the to the Mission Ranch in Carmel and like sit in and, and play like way before he was Clint Eastwood the actor let alone the director mm -hmm. and he has this um the luxury that clint has is he gets the time still and the cut <laughs> and, and, and the cut and and when i first started doing film scores back in 92 post-production was still sort of a it was it was a 12 week well john williams had it in his contract that he would actually get 12 weeks to to, to compose always nice to have right um but but most post-productions were at least 12 12 12 weeks long Fast forward 10 years, like to, to 2002, you were lucky if you got two weeks to turn around a feature film score. And that's from spotting to mixing. So the, the time period just got so compressed. I think it's, it's a real shame because what, what Clint and certain other filmmakers who, who understand this, you know, they invest all this time in the development process and they give the writing incubation. And then they go, and, and I think production's always fast and furious because you just, you're spending a lot of money, right, every day. Um, but it's almost like nobody allows post-production to sort of bloom and blossom a little bit. You know, they take, once it's there, tighten and get it out. Yeah, they, they, they got to get it, right? They got to get to the theaters and they got to start getting the money back. Um, yeah, especially especially if it is a project that has a date. You know, it's in the posters, it's in the trailers. Yeah. Sort of thing. Oh, yeah. No, we, I mean. We had a little more time, though. I mean, we didn't have a, we didn't have a date. No, I mean, although we, we knew that we wanted to start the festival circuit, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in 2016. So there was a certain amount of, I mean, we, I had that sort of arbitrary date of festival submission deadlines. Um, but to be perfectly honest, I mean, you know, you're constantly, there's still things that I want to mm -hmm. tweak and fix. And well, that's part, you're, you're, that's your project. That's yeah, happen. <laughs> exactly. Right. I guess, uh, Laura, I guess, how many festivals have you guys been to so far? I believe this will be number 13. What was number four? 
Um, no, I was. Let's see. <laughs> Maybe. Saying, I think it was Rhode Island. Was oh, it? Wow, look at that. See, no, I don't, I don't think it was Rhode Island. You should have those concert okay. shirts with the tour. You exactly. Know, the <laughs> festival tours. And we're not done. We have like six more in the next couple of weeks. You, your fir- both your first times with uh, with Heartland? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How are we doing okay? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. It's very cool. <laughs> it's very filmmaker friendly. It's very awesome. I was saying, well, how has it been as far as, I mean, you know, the, the we we're curious about the different, obviously, the different festivals, and as far as you know, being able to network and being mm-hmm. able to see the or being able to see the city and how the responses have been. You know, I guess have the, how the responses have been with the, with this tour? first airport I've flown into that has a massive banner in the airport that says Heartland Film Festival 25th, you know, anniversary or whatever. I mean, I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen any Klig lights though. Well, you know, that's. That's what we are. <laughs> I think, you know, all the different, all festivals are different. A lot of the ones we've gone to have been smaller towns. Um, this is the biggest purse. This is my, well, it's the biggest purse in the country, I think, period. Yeah. Um, yes. Which I didn't even know. That's the great irony. I didn't even know when we were submitting to Heartland that, that there was, was that there was this award, which we're not in the running for, by you're, the way. You're happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, and I'm actually, I've, I've been an Indiana girl since sixth grade. So. Where at? This is home. <laughs> I went to Carmel High School, then I went to Butler. Oh, and okay. I, I live in Broderville, so. Oh, good. Very cool. So it's nice. It's nice to um, to bring the film home, <laughs> so to speak. You can see a little family while you're here? Uh, well, I'm I'm sort of the only family. Ah, so, you are, <laughs> so yes, that's accomplished. That's great. So, yes, <laughs> home court advantage. Though. Exactly. Go. Well, good. Exactly. All right. Um, all right. I want to shift gears a little bit with uh, with Ted. Um, so, how did you get involved with addicts? Well, first, I should say I, I live in a very different world than these folks do. Mine, I'm a I'm a documentarian. Uh, and mostly a journalist. And this is why I threw you all together into the mix. <laughs> I, I like it. I like all right. It. Uh, I, was, I was fascinated by addicts from the beginning because I have a bit of a sports background, and their, famous, their most famous graduate is Oscar Robertson, uh, and they were the first team in the nation to win a state championship, uh, first all-black school in the nation to win a state championship. This was in basketball. This is in 1955. So I started out doing a basketball project uh, but while researching it, quickly realized that this was so much bigger than that. What this was, for people who don't know, it's a, it's a segregated high school that was created in 1927. This is when the Ku Klux Klan literally ran Indiana. The governor, the mayor of Indianapolis, the bulk of the state legislator, all members of the school board were all Klan or Klan-backed. And they created this school essentially to put black people over here, where white people didn't have to see them. Their kids didn't have to go to school with them. They created the school to fail. And instead, because of just incredible teachers, the school flowered uh, beyond uh, anybody's wildest dream and really did, was able to move the needle racially just by the excellence that they had over the years. Um, And so it was, again, started out as a sports story, ended up uh, anything but... Um, and I was, uh, we were, all the everybody here at WFY, um, we were very excited by what we learned. And really, it has resonated now uh, around the city, and we're pushing for national distribution as we speak. Of course. Now, I, I, I think, yeah, when the, the first thing that people can think of when they hear about addicts is, is the basketball. But I think also, like 
like feature films, if you're doing a, if you're doing a sports feature film, hopefully, it's not just it's not the main thing is not about will they win or lose the championship. Mm. It is what happens with those players, regardless of what happens with said game. Yes, even Hoosiers. So, mm. and and I think not only you you have that going obviously with with the history of the school. Well, you do, and, and I believe you know you, people still think about Attucks as a sports school, but I believe that their their legacies in the military, certainly in the arts, with incredible jazz musicians, David Baker, and you know who's in the film and sadly passed away uh, before it premiered. Um, but with, with, and most importantly, I would say, with education. Mm-hmm. And I think all of those are far more important and significant than what you saw with the sports team, which was great in its own right. And what was nice about this is I think we were able for the first time to bring a, a lot of that to light. I mean, I, I believe that that school is one of the great educational uh, triumphs in this nation's history. And yet it's uh, 200 yards off of I-65 down here in uh, downtown Indianapolis. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people drive past it every day and have no idea what happened there. And so it was, you know, when we premiered it, I can't tell you how many people age 50 to 105 in the African-American community came up to us afterward and just said, thank you for finally telling our story. Uh, and I think that was the that's been the neatest response so far. I would say, how long did it take to start developing this? And I mean, you have the resources. Was it a ma- just a matter of seeking it out or people bringing it to you? I mean, how much of that was well, one I, or the I, other? I correct you there. I did okay. not have the resources when I started. So that's always a big part <laughs> of it. Duly noted. Good. Uh, always a big part of it. And in fact, I'll say this: uh, I was coming off of a film about. Bobby Slick Leonard, yep. uh, those people in Indiana who, who know him. He's a beloved, beloved sports figure. Finding funding for that, I'm not, it's never easy to find funding, but that was, you know, that wasn't the most difficult thing I funded. But coming off the heels of that, and I said, okay, let's do a story about race relations. Like, boy, that'll be really easy to find money for. Well, These days, yeah. But yeah. actually, it was, it was incredibly heartening how many of really the top players, the top uh, endowments around town just stepped up and said, yeah, you know what? This is going to be an uneasy story. It's going to be a difficult story, but it's time it should be told. This is the 200th anniversary. It's our bicentennial of the state. You know, this is a big part of Indianapolis, Indiana history that hasn't been fully told. Let's get behind it. And that's why the only reason it, would, it really came to be was because so many in the community enabled it to be. And I guess um, you, you mentioned David Baker, who, gosh, I miss the man immensely. And and I would say, um, who are some of the folks that you, other folks that you were able to get involved in the project? Well, there are two uh, military generals that came from Crispus Attucks, including one who was the first African American general in Indiana history, a two-star general. And because of him, I also got General Colin Powell in the film because uh, General Harry Brooks was Colin Powell's chief mentor. Um, in the military. And uh, I'll say this, I've sat across from a lot of big-time sports stars, but it's a whole different uh, ball game when you're sitting across from uh, Colin Powell. Mm-hmm. He was he was fantastic. He really helped out the film. I, okay, a little bit with Powell. He, you did that here? No, I, uh, you he, had to he go didn't, there. unfortunately, he didn't come to me. I, I had to go to Washington. Wondered, <laughs> well, I wondered. I was saying, so I would say, uh, so how much Clarence Clarence all that stuff did you have to uh, hoops that you had to jump through in order to get to that? Well, I was kind of surprised at how few. Okay. You know, basically, we I got set up, friend of a friend kind of thing. Uh, get out there and just go to the office, go up the elevator. Hi, here you are. Here's where we're going to do it. He walks in, 
and we sat down and we did it. And how long did it take? Uh, the whole the interview. I interviewed him. He gave me, I'd say, nearly an hour. Wow. Which is good, and it was a good hour. It was a it was a challenging hour. I mean, he was a he was he's intimidatingly smart, but he was also right on point, and he had done his research on this. Again, he wasn't a major player, but he what he could speak to is how he was mentored by this great graduate of this school. And and what you see from this school is how it did spread out nationally. I mean, another woman, um, Janet Langhart Cohen. Uh, in fact, she who hooked me up with, uh, with General Powell. She was a 1959 uh, Attucks graduate, and she's now she's a newswoman and a playwright and an author, married to the former Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, uh, which is how I got to General Powell. Lelia Bundles, who's the National Civil Rights Spokeswoman, um, her great-great-great-grandmother was Madam C.J. Walker. She grew up in the whole addict's lifestyle. Um, Angela Brown, a fantastic opera singer, she's in the film. And mm-hmm. not only that, but she performed at our premiere, which, which kind of brought the house down. Um, but, you know, Angela really had a good line, too. She said, if you, if you get over to the school, for those people who haven't had a chance to do it, what's, what's, what's really compelling is about it is that they have all of the grad pictures of all the graduating classes from 1928 on 28 29 30 and there's all these you know each of hundreds of faces in them and back then they were all just dressed to the nines and you hear this from from one alumni after another they every day they went to school and they walked down those halls they feel all of these faces and these just weren't random faces mm-hmm. these were their family these were their mothers these were their grandmothers these were you know the, the, one of the first tuskegee airmen came from that school one of the navy's golden 13 came from that school um on and on and on and you just feel these voices from the past saying as angela put it so well you can do it you can do it i mean understand that the people who went to the school were very very underprivileged um there was not money in that community especially early on first you had all of the stuff with the clan in the 1920s very ugly period then of course you had the depression in the 1930s and then the war it was a difficult time and yet th- that it was a school of high expectations um, and it just worked it, it worked to such a degree that uh, that I mean when people watch the story they, they just can't believe it I couldn't believe it I didn't know any of this when I started so it was two years of research two years of embedding myself in the community and just listening, sitting in the houses of these people and just listening and listening and listening. That allowed us to tell their story. Outstanding. So let's uh, let's double check again. So when uh, when are the screenings for Addicts? Uh, there's only one screening. It's okay. a special presentation, uh, and that is next Thursday, October 27th at 3 p.m., and that is in Castleton. Very good. And then once again for Year by the Sea? I uh, note <laughs> they are cheating. It's okay. It's fine. They're looking it up right now. There's no, don't worry about it. There's no exam. It's okay. all good. Um, <laughs> so Friday the twenty first tonight at eight fifteen. Tomorrow Saturday the twenty second at six p.m. Those are both at Castleton. Tuesday at three thirty. The twenty fifth at Traders Point, and then Saturday the 29th at twelve fifteen at Castleton. Okay, very good. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, this is Film Sociology. It's the Heartland edition of Film Sociology, Part 2. Um, but I do want to bring up a couple of things I got to see over the weekend. And good, just chime in because it's that's what we do here. It's a, mm. it's a, it's a roundhouse. Anyway, um, opening in theaters this weekend, um, I was looking through, I guess, one of the big ones that, that came out, and I didn't realize that they were going to make a sequel, but I guess they did. It made enough money. I guess it'd be, it's not, it should be a reminder, folks, just because something doesn't do extraordinary here 
doesn't mean it'll do. You know, it, it made it made money overseas, and because of that, it spawned a sequel. Because now we have a sequel to Jack Reacher or Jack Reacher Chapter Two. Mm-hmm. Never go back. Alexander's eyes just <laughs> dropped him. Now, to be fair, I like the first one. I'm not a. I, I didn't. I never read the book, so it didn't bother me that you know five foot two Tom Cruise is starring in it. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Uh, but you know, the first one was directed by Christopher McQuarrie, and it was a real crackerjack kind of popcorn film. And of course, any film that has Werner Herzog as the villain is okay by me. And this time around, um, it, it's a film that feels a little bit, if you combine The Fugitive with the outlaw Josie Wales, mm. and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. You know, Cruz is, is, of course, back as Reacher. He's also a producer in the film. Um, the kind of uh, muscle for hire, uh, wandering the lands like Kane and Kung Fu, only muscular and with a car and sometimes on foot. But he's, he's out to uh, rescue a friend of his. He he only got to know via the phone who was a, a major who was accused of of murder. They escape in Cracker Jack blockbuster movie fashion. A lot of fast fighting, and they're on the road. And then, as if that wasn't enough, there's also a 15 year old girl who may or may not be Jack Reacher's daughter. So there's the lone wolf who also has a surrogate family. And this is kind of the outlaw Josie Wales portion because I cite 40 year old films, but. Um, and and the first film, as fun as that was, this one's a little softer, I think, because it, it, the the time that we get we don't get of him whooping tail and taking names, he's got this surrogate family. Of course, he and the female who sort of like each other, but they don't sort of like each other. It's mm. sort of Benedict and Beatrice, only not Shakespeare and mm. more yelling. Um, so that element is in it, as well as the fifteen year old. So and you find out that the other two who tag along. They show their strengths as well, usually into the last third of the film. Of course, during the climax, which is during a parade in New Orleans, because that's where you have, <laughs> you're laughing, because, yeah, that's where those fights happen. Um, it's The less you think about this film, obviously, the more fun it is. My colleague Nick Rogers really took the film to task, and it's worth, worth checking out at the Film Yap. Um, n- not as fun as the first one, probably not as necessary at all, but, you know, there's there's worse stuff out there. Tyler Perry has a film opening. Anyway... Um, but it's it's there. It's okay. Probably not necessary, but and but not as good as the first one. So that is out there. Also out there is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there there I used to I used to do a, a little bit of shtick um, involving some particular film personas by some actors. So one of my one of my jokes used to be, what is that? Um, what's that film with Zach Galifianakis where he's an outsider and he's prissy and weird? Well, I can't do that anymore because he's he's now moved on to neurotic suburban dad type character in Keeping Up with the Joneses. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2016, and we now live in a world where Isla Fisher is playing fussy suburban mom. I suppose. Anyway, they play a couple who's they have neighbors that have just moved over, played by uh, John Hamm and and Gal Gadot, who has more to do in this in Criminal, and uh, will hopefully do a lot more when she plays Wonder Woman again. Isn't Amy Adams in that? No, this is Isla Fisher. Because oh, I read an article. The, on the other funny redhead. But, but I read an <laughs> article on the plane today that said part of the reason why she did them did the movie was because everybody always thinks that she's Amy Adams. Well, part of it there is that there mm. is that part of it. Um, but no, this is this is Isla because Amy Adams is in um, Arrival, which I know is coming out in about a month or so. But no, the but so now they're the they're the uh, the voyeuristic neighbors with where you know wearing the floppy hats and trying to figure out if their neighbors are actually spies. And they are so. Mm. So there's there's that story of, you know, uh, 
anything. I, I, I remember taking my family to Central uh, Intelligence, the the film mm-hmm. with The Rock and, and with Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart. And I said to my daughter, I said, well, you should see this film's dad called The In-Laws, the mm. original In-Laws, the great In-Laws. So, so it's a suburban version of, yes, people that are in their comfort zone, or in this case their cul-de-sac, being thrown into intrigue and screaming and PG-13 violence. Go back in time. What was that film with uh, Tim Robbins? Uh, one winds up being their neighbors in a neighborhood. Well, that was Ar- oh Arlington Road yes. with uh, Jeffrey, the, the serious version of yes. that. You know, is your neighbor a terrorist? That's right. And in this case, are your neighbors Mr. and Mrs. Bond? In this right. case, so um, in, in, it's okay. We've seen this before of uh, suburbanites outside their comfort zone, and then we find out that the super spy couple, John Hamm and Gal Gadot, who who quite. Pretty good, by the way. Um, Gal, Gal gets to get a little, like I said, a little, do a little bit more than the last film I saw her in, the Kevin Costner vehicle, Criminal. And John Hamm, of course, getting a chance to do comedy, not quite SNL level, but uh, you know he's having a good time. As the and they become the super spy couple who have problems of their own. So, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it, 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 some people will find this a lot funnier than I did. And you know, Zach Galifianakis is now doing the role that Ben Stiller would have done ten years ago. Mm. But the, also the fact that it's directed by Greg Matola, who gave a super bad and Adventureland, and it's it's just a, a little bit of a step down. And so we're hoping for a step up uh, the next time around. Now I know two glowing reviews, ladies and gentlemen. However, there is something opening this weekend, and I hope if if these don't wet your whistle, I hope you go check this out. And it's it's a Swedish film called A Man Called Uve. And uh, it's it's kind of a different take on the grumpy old man story. And and this is the type of thing I could see it being remade as a Hollywood film. And I pray to God that it does not. But it's um, it's Rolf Losgard who who's playing the title role. It's a small little community, not really gated community, but it's the community where you have the one gentleman that's just looking over everything. He's double checking the locks in the in the storage area, and if you drive on the on the sidewalk, he comes and yells at you, and he shakes his fist in anger. I believe the 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 article in the Simpsons was "Old Man Yells at Cloud." He's that guy. Was this the one that was on the festival circuit? It, it was. We yep. saw it was at Port Townsend, I yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I had another one from the T-shirt, so uh, <laughs> from the tour shirt. But anyway, so so you know, this is his, um, and and as as the first couple scenes, you're like, okay, we have to spend time with this guy. But then we see him delivering flowers to his wife's gravesite, and he talks to his wife there, and and so there's elements of, like I said, grumpy old man, and mm-hmm. even the the if you to take a Swedish version of the montage from Up. Mm. which always puts a lump in the throat. Um, and, of course, what happens is you know, new neighbors are moving next door. They're not from Sweden. And so the fact that they're not from Sweden and they're new neighbors just throws a thorn into the side of, of, of Uwe. But, of course, they eventually take a shine to him. And as the film goes on, we also get flashbacks to kind of how the grumpy old man got that way. Hmm. For good and for bad. Uh, there's a really wonderful flashbacks of him meeting his wife for the first time and then them getting together and the obstacles that they have to go over. Like I said, if you took the, the montage of Up and expanded it mm. and made it Swedish. Um, with, with subtitles. With sub, yes, with subtitles. <laughs> yes, you can read at the theater. There's nothing wrong with that. My God, put your electronics. You have electronics in your – I'm an old person. You have electronics in the theater and you're complaining about reading the screen. <laughs> Right. Anyway, um, so so as time goes on, we see the neighbors also see a change of heart in Uve, 
And anyway, it's it's a beautifully understated film, a really nice performance from the lead. And you know, I'm glad to see that it was making the festival circuit, and now it's at the Art House Theater. So so go check it out. I there, think it's based on the book. Isn't I, it? I think it is. I'd have to double check that. But uh, but yeah. So so anyway, that I think that's the top pick. That's not Heartland oriented. Mm. So that is out there as well. Now, a few other notes of stuff that's going around town. Of course, again, this depends on when you are hearing the show. So, you know, we, we date the show whenever possible. Um, running this weekend at midnight at Keystone Arts, uh, the 80s film Night of the Creeps, one of the underrated uh, sci-fi horror films from the 1980s. And you mark your calendars next thir- next Friday and Saturday night, October 28th and 29th at midnight at Keystone Arts. The original Halloween from 1978. Wow. A film that my dad took me to when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> you're nodding, Ted. You, you all, me too. You saw it in the theater? I did. You were, you're slightly older than me, so I think you had a much more fun experience than I did. Uh, as I recall, that was a heck of a night. <laughs> <laughs> my, my father and my older brother, my brother, see, I was eight, Tim was 14, and the two stories I have about my first early experiences with scary movies, you mentioned K-pop. I saw Jaws in the theater in the summer of 1975 mm-hmm. in Long Beach Island, New Jersey. How old would you have been? I was five. <laughs> I'm f- and look how I turned out. I'm okay. Um, but I remember full house, and they're screaming, and you know, all this. My grandfather, who I thought was the old man in the sea, walked out. And scared, the film scared me to death. And, of course, what happens the next day? My father, love you, Dad, um, takes me to the beach, picks me up over his head, and starts marching toward the water. And all he said, that's exactly what he did. And I, I lost my stuff, I guess is a way of putting it. Yeah. Two notes, John Williams. Thanks. Thanks a lot. If, if they were only that simplistic yeah. all the time, exactly. but but the th- one with what I remember about Halloween was it was an evening. Sh- I remember it was an evening film, and this was the one where I could hear screams and laughter at the same time, mm. and that confused me when I was eight. Um, I guess you know, and and horror is not everybody's genre, and I get that. You know, Kobe, my old film show producer, can back me up on that. Uh, you know, it was, and some people were just having a riotous fun time, you know, like a fun house, like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't dawn on me at that time that, you know, you wanted to be scared, and being scared was fun. I was I, eight, and I was developing, so. I read an article on the plane, flying over here today that Sigourney Weaver is a total chicken when it comes to scary movies, and she's been in some of course, and she's, you know, alien, the alien franchise, for crying out loud, so... I guess, did you guys have examples of stuff that scared you at a young age that you'd be willing to share? Film-wise? Um, yeah. The Nightmare on Elm Street. The first one? I, I don't even That's remember. That's the Freddy Krueger, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was a little girl, and my brother, my older brother, was babysitting me. Thanks, siblings. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that one that one was stuck with me for a while. I'm not I don't like horror movies. I'm not okay. a fan. Okay, so. that's all right. <laughs> it's amazing what your siblings will watch when you're around, especially when they're in charge. Exactly. Yes. Uh, not I, I wasn't even young. It was it was re- rather recently uh, Mike Flanagan's a wonderful filmmaker and he had this indie film called Absentia. Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. Um Do tell. It, it, it is it is probably best psychological thriller it's not really a horror it's it's more of a psychological thriller but it's got definitely some some elements to it that would put it for me in the camp of horror and i mean it's, it's a genius film he shot it for seventy thousand dollars the entire thing nice and it is better than 
99.9% of any of the studio movies out there. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, I'm a Jaws guy. Now that you've you know identified me as significantly older than you, <laughs> uh, my dad took me to that. I was, I guess that was 1977. Is that right? 75. 75. So yep. I would have been eight years old. And when that okay, when that blue oh, I head okay, when that I blue head that pops out of the hole in the boat under the water, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, I think I lost my stuff at that point. Thank you, Dan. Said. Uh, okay, I, yeah, I take it back. Jaws then, guy. then you, you, I have aged badly. You have not. You're good. So <laughs> as long as we have that clear. Uh, fair enough, which is great for radio. Um, I would say because. Last well, the last two I got to go to the last two weekends of the midnight movies. Uh, two weeks ago, they showed the '78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers oh, wow. with Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams, and last week was Carrie, the original one directed by Brian De Palma, and I had never seen that on the big screen because I was well, apparently that fine line between Carrie and Jaws in the Sosi mm. household, but uh, watching it again on a well, I've seen it before. But seeing it on the big screen and having also having a teenage daughter yeah, yeah. adds just a little bit more of a dimension to that. I'd like to see um, uh, The Exorcist in the, in, in the theater. Man, I showed that to my daughter last year. And uh, hashtag family values. Because um, I was the only one allowed to clean my daughter's face when she was a baby. And the, because I would take the little baby wipe and as I would clean her face, I would say, it burns, it burns. <laughs> and, of course, there's a term I use around the house called sitcom wife look. And then Lynn, my wife, would look at her. And, and of course, we joked. I mean, years from now, we're, she's going to find out where that's from. And then she, after a while, she knew it was from The Exorcist. And then we wound up watching The Exorcist. In the daytime, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and we and it got to that scene, and she just kind of looked at me, and she goes, "That's where it's from." I went, "Yeah, that's where it's from." <laughs> then I showed her. Well, I also showed her Jaws, and her response was, "I could see how that would have scared you when you were five. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, little hipster. So, yeah. So anyway, that's so good stuff happening over uh, at, at the midnight movies. A uh, few other notes, of just just so you have it out there. Yes, we, we. It's October. It's not cold yet. We're Midwesterners, but over at the Tibbs Drive. In we have uh, a Medea Halloween paired up with Blair Witch. Blair Witch. The se- this is the scared sequel. The Jesus out of me. I, when I saw you know that. what? I I don't think it scared me at the right mind because my my theory was if if the most terrifying thing is being stuck in the woods with a bunch of whiny Gen Y filmmakers, that's pro- then then mission accomplished. But I don't think that was good, that was what they were going for. Uh, but no, this is the sequel, which is out now. Um, also out in the and screen two. The Kevin Hart document, Kevin Hart concert film "What Now," along with Masterminds, um, Screen Three, Ouija: Origin of Evil, along with mm. the Girl and the Train, also known as Emily Blunt's Gone Girl, and then Screen Four, you have The Accountant, along with Miss Pettigrew's Home for Peculiar Children. So that is happening at the Tibbs at the Skyline this weekend. The original Halloween from 1978, along with 1982's The Thing. John Carpenter, so John Carpenter double feature with uh, Kurt Russell, Will Brimley, and Keith David. As we all know, everyone's favorite voiceover guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, also being shown at 11.45 p.m., The Redeemer, Son of Satan from 1978. They find some somebody's got a print <laughs> nice. of this, and they show it. <laughs> I love that at the skyline. So, um, also, uh, how am I doing on time? Oh, we're good. Um, also, down at uh, Bloomington at the IU Cinema, again, depending on when you hear this, um, but uh, to Saturday the 22nd at 3 p.m., the uh, the film Big Deal on Madonna Street, 
And then at 7 p.m., the documentary The Black Power Mixtape 1967-1975, along with May Day. Uh, Sunday the 23rd at 3 p.m., the 2010 documentary Wasteland. And then at 6.30 p.m. on Sunday the 23rd is a part of the John Borman collection, Excalibur from 1981. Thanks, Helen Mirren. Uh, Monday the 24th, the Drama Museum Hours from 2012. Thursday the 27th, the John Borman double feature Point Blank at 6.30 p.m., one of my all-time favorite revenge films Period. Lee Marvin is great in this. Along at 9, as if 6.30 p.m. point blank wasn't enough, 9.30 p.m. deliverance. Whoa. Yes. Talk (laughs) about terrifying. And it's not just for Bob and Tom Radio anymore. That film is scary. And great performances from Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, Ronnie Cox, and John Voight. And the author. Uh, William uh, William Dickey, who uh, plays the sheriff in that. That's right. right. Uh, Apparently... Harder to work with than Burt Reynolds and John Voight, so there's that. (laughs) Friday the 26th, John Borman will be lecturing at 3 p.m. at IU Cinema. And then the double feature, Hope and Glory from 1987, Mm. as well as Queen and Country from 2014. Saturday the 29th, they'll be showing his film uh, The General from 1998 at 3 o'clock. And then at 7 p.m. on Saturday, October 29th from 1981, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Wow. So there you go. Lots. And then the Sunday, the 30th at 3 p.m., the National Theater live performance of Frankenstein. This is the one with Johnny mm. e. Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. So mm. plenty of stuff out there to check out. Um, there is one obit I do want to mention. Uh, if Chris Lloyd were here, he, we one time called it uh, Hollywood obits. He refers to it as Dead People We Like. Because we don't have time for dead people we don't like. I also want to thank the AV Club for providing me with this information, the unofficial news source of film sociology, the <laughs> Onions AV Club. Independent American filmmaker Ted V. Mickles passed away uh, last week at the age of 87. Where do you know him from? Well, if you really sift in through independent films from the 60s and 70s, you know him as from, from the director of such films as The Black Klansman, Girl in Gold Boots, and The Astro Zombies. Love that pause. <laughs> awesome. Oh, well, some of these I know from a couple of things, from a couple of sources. One, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm. Two, the Golden Turkey Award books from the Medved Brothers. Um, started out in the early 60s with exploitation films such as Dr. Sex, The Undertaker, and His Pals, and The Black Klansman. Probably not want to search a couple of these titles at work. Just saying. Um, 1968, the film Girl in Gold Boots, which was featured in an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. The Astro Zombies, which featured John Carradine and Taurus Santana, for you fans of uh, Hmm. uh, uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Um, Astro Zombies, I didn't know this. Astro Zombies was co-written by actor Wayne Rogers. Yes, of MASH fame. Shot on a budget of $37,000, 3000 of which was for John Carradine. <laughs> this was, and, of course, by that time, John was doing 10 films a year. Um, let's see. Uh, Mickles would continue working in the film in the 1970s, was the executive producer of Bob Clark's cult film Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, and also wrote, directed, produced, and edited 1973's The Doll Squad, a.k.a. Seduce and Destroy, 
Again, probably not going to search at this one at work just to be on the safe side. Um, is, is written, the film featured a team of hand-picked buxom female operatives on a mission to stop a madman's devious plot. Its influence can be felt on, of course, Charlie's Angels, as well as Quentin Tarantino writing about the fictional pilot Fox Force 5 in Pulp Fiction. See, it all... It does tie It together. does have Was a weird... Was Roger Corman involved in any um, of this? You know what? I don't think so. Got to meet Roger Corman in IU Cinema, and he was an influence because my first two plays as a producer combined $200. There you go. Thank you, Roger. <laughs> um, let's see. But yeah, going on a little bit more... Um, was the head of TVM Studios in Las Vegas, wrote and directed his only G-rated film, Heart of a Boy, as well as two Astro Zombie sequels and a second chapter, because chapter, you needed a second chapter, to 1971's The Corpse Grinders. <laughs> Again, don't look it up at work. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, he was featured in his... Oh, um yeah, I kind of like that. So, yeah, Ted Mickles. Uh, so now you're going to look up his work. Absolutely. And see, or at the very least, maybe the trailers on YouTube. That might be something to share with. So, okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I, we just got a, a few minutes left in the show. I guess I'm just going to open up because I, I know you've been busy on the circuit, and mm. I know you've been prepping up for this. But have you been able to watch anything freely lately? You At, at the festivals? Doesn't matter. Yeah? Yeah. Well, there's a uh, saw a great documentary in Port Townsend called The Founders mm. uh, about these sort of I, 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 I call them the 13 rebels with the cause. It was the the first women to uh, form the LPGA, and you know golf on the surface doesn't sound like it would be that uh, interesting, but back in the 50s and 60s, you know, before Title IX, sure, when they were battling to 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 be in a man's world, that was pretty cool. I like that. What else have we seen? Uh, we saw Equity. We saw that in New York. Mm-hmm. That was actually on the festival circuit, and then it was at Lincoln Plaza uh, Cinemas. That was kind of an interesting take on you know Wall Street. But. Oh yes, because um, oh yeah, I saw that as I'm sorry, I blanked. I, I saw that as well because uh, a yeah. woman from Breaking Bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of if it, it it's not fair to call it a female Wall Street because uh, mm-hmm. it's it's more than that. But mm-hmm. it's 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 her not only trying to maintain a deal, but you know cer- certain things are starting to happen beyond. Her control and it starts to unravel. Mm, so mm. instead, I guess instead of calling it a female Wall Street, it is, and it doesn't rely on the fact entirely that it's that she is female. But right. it, it sure is ha- in a lot of cases, it, it doesn't help that her character ha- has to deal with that. Was it called Sweet Pea? About Sweet the, Pea. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that was an incredible film. The, the, have you heard about that? We saw that at Woodstock. I have not. Uh, it's about the what was the the basketball player? I think um, they called him Sweepy. Yeah, <laughs> like it, he was on a bunch of different he, teams. He, he's basically the, the the guy. The he's the antihero. I mean, he just he fell apart. He was I, what was his name? But a professional uh, African American uh, basketball player. Incredible talent. Just. I yeah. think he was one of those guys on the and one tour or whatever. The guy could do amazing things with the ball, but he yeah. couldn't gel within a team structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 had had real challenges with uh, drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. and just I mean everybody was yeah star in the playground and didn't quite make the uh, yeah. the transition. Yeah, Lloyd Sweet P. Daniels, yes, hot keyboard clicking here on film sociology. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got about one minute left. Uh, there's a couple titles of note on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, you somebody asked for Independent Day Resurgence and Alice Through the Looking Glass. I didn't. There you go. <laughs> However, also on DVD and Blu-ray this week is Woody Allen's Cafe Society. Um, 
got to see this opening weekend in New York. It's the only time I get to say something as D-baggish as that. But uh, but a fun <laughs> Valentine to uh, a screwball comedy with Jesse Eisenberg, Blake Lively, Kristen Stewart, who's actually very good in this, and it's uh, and Steve Carell. And it's a screwball comedy behind the show business scene in L.A. in the 1930s. And it looks great, and it's a lot of fun. A couple of old titles on Blu-ray. You know you need the Marx, Brother, Marx Brothers Universal Films of the 30s on Blu-ray so it's clearer and you can see Margaret Dumont lead the, lead the world in comedic assist. Uh, the 1993 Abel Ferrara film Body Snatchers is out, as well as on Criterion. You can get it on Blu-ray, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, as well as Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Ladies and some gentlemen, some words to live by. Soylent Green is people. Zardas has spoken. Go see a good movie. Go to Heartland. You deserve it. Guys, thanks for hanging out. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Matt. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon. California. Good afternoon, Michigan.